It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Marie about pudendal neuralgia. According to the ClevelandClinic.org, pudendal neuralgia, or pudendal nerve entrapment, is when you experience chronic pelvic pain from damage or irritation to your pudendal nerve. If you have pudendal neuralgia, the nerve is injured or compressed and causes stabbing, burning, or shooting pain. The pain can be felt in your buttocks, perineum, and genital region, and is more severe when sitting. When I recorded with Marie, we discussed putting a content warning on this episode because this story features detailed discussion of the genitals. Part of why Marie's journey has been so difficult is because she has experienced things with her body that people just don't talk about publicly. Marie has one of the more complicated stories we've ever featured on this podcast. It involves treating a UTI, which resulted in a rare fungal infection, which caused clitoral adhesions, requiring a surgery called a lysis of clitoral adhesions. And then she developed pudendal neuralgia, likely from nerve damage from this surgery. Each of these events is extremely rare and unlikely. And the fact that all of them happened and led her to this life of chronic pain is extremely unfair and frustrating. Part of her story is also a rare reaction to the birth control pill, leaving her susceptible to this series of events. And now that she's living with pudendal neuralgia, she avoids sitting at all costs. Sitting is extremely painful. Marie has become an advocate, sharing her story online in the hopes of helping others going through similar things. She'll talk us through the decision to become an advocate after having researched so much about her own experience, all of this information was bouncing around in her head, and she needed to find an outlet. Her social media handle is My Secret Life of Pain, and she's made it her mission to take these things that people don't talk about, her secret pain, and make it public, changing the narrative on the way we view our bodies. This is a powerful story. It's a very frustrating story. Marie is still in the midst of her journey and still researching, still fighting, still trying to find a way to better her quality of life and limit her pain. I'm very grateful to Marie for coming on the show, bringing light to things that are often not spoken of, because that is the founding principle of this podcast. And we'll get to her story in just a couple minutes. I recently received an email in response to a recent episode titled Isabel's Chronic Illness Chronicle, POTS, SFN, MECFS, and more. This was a super fun recent episode with Isabel. We discuss her ramp of approval series on TikTok, where she goes to different places in London and rates their accessibility. This email is from Peggy, and it reads, As I'm listening to your discussion with Isabel in episode 35, my brain is going into overdrive. I have a lot in common with both you and Isabel, so almost everything she described is very familiar. I hope something here is helpful for her or for you. The way she describes her burning hands and feet and her intolerance of heat sounds similar to erythromyalgia, EM for short, which I have. I highly recommend the Facebook group Raynauds and Erythromyalgia Support UK, which I have learned so much from. The group mods are fabulous. Ehlers-Danlos can indeed cause SFN, or small fiber neuropathy. It's what's caused mine. And interestingly, SFN can progress to EM, erythromyalgia. So for me, it went EDS to SFN to EM. Ehlers-Danlos can also cause vestibular migraine, which I also have. Yep, my life is fun. <laughs> 
The way she describes her neck pain and how moving her neck can cause various problems sounds a bit like Chiari malformation, which can be related to EDS. Tethered cord is another possibility. I don't understand how she was diagnosed, honestly. I'm not aware of any way to diagnose from an EMG slash nerve function test. By the way, I have the following many, many diagnoses, vestibular migraines, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, erythromyalgia, syringomyelia, and that's one I don't know, small fiber neuropathy, Raynaud's, POTS, GERD, myopic macular degeneration, and MCAS. Your podcast is fabulous. I've learned so much from you and your guests. Thanks for that. From Peggy in Austin, Texas. Peggy, thank you so much for your email. I really appreciate the kind words, and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Isabel's story. A lot of really great information in there, and you do ask about an EMG slash nerve function test. I'm assuming this is in relation to small fiber neuropathy, because Isabel does mention being diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy from a nerve conduction test in her episode. And since I also am diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy, this is something that I have learned a little bit about. There is apparently an EMG test, a very specialized nerve conduction test that can test the functionality of small fiber nerves. I've had EMGs done several times, and they run electricity through your nerves and measure it to see if it's degrading from one end of your nerve to the other. And yes, it's very painful. This is one of the more painful tests that I've experienced, although nothing tops the Eurodynamics test. That was an absolute nightmare. Normally, an EMG tests the large fiber nerves, but I am told, and I have done some reading, that it is possible to test the small fiber nerves as well. But it's a very specialized test. I think it's even different equipment than the regular EMG. Not sure if I'm correct about that. But I do know that the skin biopsy, where they actually take a piece of skin and look at it under a microscope, is a more common way to test for small fiber neuropathy. In fact, when I was tested, my doctor ordered the nerve conduction test. I waited for months to have this test done. The day before the test, the lab called me and said, hey, we don't even have the equipment to do this. We have no possible way of doing a nerve conduction test for small fiber neuropathy. I don't know why you were even scheduled in the first place. And that's after months of waiting for this test. And then I went back to my doctor and they finally figured out how to get the punch biopsy done. It took me months I think actually like a year to finally get the test done because I went from office to office trying to figure out who could do the test. It was, it was a long drawn out story. I don't even remember all the details. But along the way, I did learn that there is a possible way of doing a small fiber neuropathy test with specialized EMG equipment, but they don't even have it at the University of Washington. So when Isabel mentioned that that's how she was tested in the podcast, I didn't even think twice about it because I knew that that was a thing that could happen. We didn't really talk about it in detail. But if you're out there and you're looking to get tested for small fiber neuropathy, I highly recommend just going for the skin biopsy. My understanding is that that is the gold standard in small fiber neuropathy testing. But really what you're looking for is, is it a positive or a negative result? So for Isabel, she did the nerve conduction test. It was a positive result. She was diagnosed. So it doesn't really matter which way she did that. Even when you do a skin biopsy, if you take that biopsy from a place where you do not have nerve damage, you could test negative even though you do have small fiber neuropathy. So no testing is perfect. It's really all about just trying to get results from the test. When you get a positive result, you've got it. If you get a negative result, you still might have it and you might have to do more testing. I hope that makes sense. Peggy, thank you again for your email. We have a couple new five-star ratings on Spotify for the Major Pain Podcast. We're up to 39 five-star ratings. That is absolutely incredible. Every single person who's ever rated Major Pain 
on Spotify has rated this podcast with five stars. I appreciate that so much. This is a huge way to help support the show, help us reach new listeners, tell that Spotify algorithm that this show is worth listening to. So each and every one of you who've rated us, I really appreciate it. In fact, Spotify has now overtaken Apple Podcasts, even though we weren't even on Spotify for the first year of the show. Apple Podcast is still sitting at 36 ratings with a 4.9. We had one one-star rating. All the rest of them have been five-star ratings over on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this podcast, it's so important to leave us a positive rating and review wherever you listen. If you rate us on a platform other than Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to let me know and I will thank you in the next episode because it really means a lot to me. I'd also love to connect with you on our social media pages. Major Pain is on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Major Pain Podcast. And we now have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Major Pain Podcast. These are all great places to get involved in our community of listeners. And as of recently, you can check out video clips from the podcast episodes. I've been recording the video of the Zoom sessions when I interview people for the podcast. It's definitely something that is, you know, completely optional if our guests are interested in being on video and then releasing that as clips on social media. I've been experimenting, releasing more of that video on Patreon, either just for our patrons or publicly to everyone who's interested. And I've just realized that it's just, I don't have the spoons to add in that extra project for myself every week. So I've decided not to continue pursuing releasing video versions of the full conversation and just focus on releasing little video clips from the episodes. That's the thing that I feel like has been connecting the most with our audience recently. People seem to really enjoy seeing clips of the videos. So I'm going to stick with just putting out video clips on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. That's been super fun recently. Whichever of those platforms you use, I hope you will follow the Major Pain Podcast and interact with our content. You get to see the amazing guests that we have on the show in video, which is super fun. And I always love interacting on social media with the listeners of the podcast. Since getting on medication for mast cell activation syndrome, my health has been improving. And recently I actually took on a new part-time job that I'm very excited about with a pedal company, an instrument pedal company called Cosmodio Instruments. I am now the community manager for Cosmodio. This company was started by one of my absolute best friends, Barton, who I used to play in a band with. And when we were playing in a band together, he used to design distortion pedals, custom-made distortion pedals that we would use on stage. This is my, my old band, Mugatu. Years later, Barton started his own pedal company and recently released his very first product called the Pet Yeti Distortion Pedal. I absolutely love this thing. I was one of the beta testers and I had so much fun beta testing it. It was such a great experience making some videos for Barton that I've actually now been hired as sort of an in-house content creator and social media manager. We're calling me the community manager for Cosmodio Instruments. This is the perfect thing for me at this point in my life. I did just get on SSDI disability but I am allowed to make a certain amount per month without losing my disability. And this is the perfect job for me. It's kind of allowing me to dip my toes back into doing something professionally, testing myself, testing my body, but also having some leeway of working on my own schedule and working with a close friend on something that's super fun that I absolutely love. Cosmodio Instruments is on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Cosmodio Instruments on all those platforms and you'll find us. Or you can head to the website cosmode.io. If you're in need of a distortion pedal, this is the most versatile 
incredible pedal that I've ever used. I'm not just saying that because I work for the company, and I know this is totally off topic for the podcast, but this is just something that I'm really excited about. My hope is to get off of disability as soon as possible, and I hope to do that under my own power, by working, by making money and getting off disability. That's what my current goal is. And I don't want to stop doing this podcast. I love doing this, but I do need to find ways to support it financially. And the best way that you can help me with that is by signing up on Patreon, patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. You can sign up to support this podcast with monthly financial contributions. There are different levels of recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes when you sign up on Patreon. We have an amazing community of listeners supporting the show through Patreon. I appreciate you all so, so much. I have a lot of long-term, huge goals with Patreon. I'd love to, at some point, be able to support other people with their chronic illnesses. Getting genetic testing is my primary dream goal to help other people with. But for now, I'm just focused on actually keeping this podcast afloat. So head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to check it out. You can actually sign up on Patreon for free if you'd just like to follow our public posts there. And if you'd like to get behind the paywall, get access to all of our bonus episodes with myself and Andy, you can do so for as little as $2 per month. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. And the last thing that I will plug before we jump into our episode with Marie today is, of course, our partnership with Rare Patient Voice, an amazing program that connects patients and caregivers with research studies and surveys. You can use our affiliate link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, to not only sign up to participate, but support this show at the same time. I finally signed up this week. I've been procrastinating on that, but I finally signed up myself for Rare Patient Voice. I went through the process, told them about my diagnoses. Now that I have diagnoses, it's so exciting. I can finally sign up for this. But as I went through the process, I realized I could have just signed up with chronic pain. I didn't need the specific type of chronic pain, which is, of course, small fiber neuropathy. And I also signed up with mast cell activation syndrome. After you sign up, they process your application, and then they'll get back to you when they have research studies and surveys that might fit you. If you participate, you earn an average of $120 per hour for your time. I'll definitely keep you updated if I participate in a study or a survey. I'll remind you as always that my guest and I are not medical professionals. Please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our amazing episode with Marie about pudendal neuralgia. Marie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. We were just chatting a little bit. I've seen a bit of your story online, and it seems like you've been through a ton. A lot of things yeah. that I've never heard of before or experiences we haven't covered on the show. So I'm really excited to jump into that. Thank you so much for being willing to come on the show and share your story. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, let's get to know you a little bit. Marie, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, I am a music teacher and performer by training and trade. And I am still doing a little bit of music lessons. Um, I have my piano here at my elbow level because I'm, I need to use a standing desk now to do most things. Mm. Um, so anyway, this is sometimes where I'm working nowadays. Um, I don't get to work as much as I'd like to. I still can do a lot of things that I like. I also like um, going out in nature a lot. 
this uh, season, I've been going out and picking wild mushrooms, mushroom oh, foraging. Fun. I've done that. That is really fun. really fun. Yeah, I picked up this hobby since my uh, current illness because it's just a walk. I can't sit. So walking things are like, let's go do as much of that as I can. Yeah. So just ar- across the street from my, my family's house in Santa Cruz, um, there's just all kinds of edible mushrooms that grow in January, February. Wow. What type of mushrooms grow in Santa Cruz? Tons of great edibles. <laughs> um, bolites, like our the porcini mushrooms, which are a real, real treat. Golden chanterelles are another really popular one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a dessert mushroom called the candy cap. Wow. <laughs> uh, I recently found two two giant cauliflower called cauliflower mushrooms that kind of look like egg noodles. Yeah. And I fried those up. There's another one that's pretty famous called the Amanita muscaria. Oh, sure. Which can be used for medicinal purposes. Yeah. I mean, that's the one that I think most people think of when they think of mushroom foraging. <laughs> right. Right. And it's not it's not psychedelic, but it's psychoactive. Yeah. Is that the one that's red with the white caps? Yeah. It's like Mario. Yeah, it's the Mario mushroom. It's the Alice in Wonderland mushroom. Yeah, yeah, very Those fun. Those become my friends as well. When I've been foraging, uh, it was for morels and porcinis. And I had nice. no idea how delicious fresh foraged mushrooms were. They're, yeah. they're a whole level above as far as taste is concerned. Right, there's no comparison. It's like vanilla versus the rainbow of flavors. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't found morels yet myself. Good yeah, to be they're, they're tricky to find. Porcinis are hard to find too. I was learning you have to kind of look for the bulging of leaves on the ground. Yeah, sticking up from below. You're, you're not very likely to see a porcini, but you're much more likely to see a bulge. And if you yeah. clear the debris aside, there might be a mushroom underneath. Right. It's kind of like the opposite of whack-a-mole. I don't know, like you have to like dig under the pine, pine needles. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun. So those are definitely my primo find out here. <laughs> And so music, this is so interesting. I, I'm, I'm a musician as well. Is piano your main instrument? Um, singing and voices, but okay. I do teach piano and I write with piano and use piano to compose. Yeah, you're a composer as well. It sounds like a lot has changed in your life, but yeah, I, I know for me, performance really changed when I got sick, where I really don't perform anymore and I really miss it. But is performance a part of your life? So there were times in the last three and a half years, periods where I've gotten offers that I couldn't refuse or didn't, obviously didn't want to refuse. And so I went ahead and was like, I'm going to just do it anyway. Yeah. And so I, I have performed and it's not as fun and it's hard. Yeah. And the, the, everything, as you know, it's like a lot of times it's a lot of work and you're not really getting paid a lot of money. So you really should be having fun. That's why you're doing music. And so when you're in a certain level of pain, it's all kind of like a threshold wherever, where you are, like, if you're at this level, like, it, it's not really worth it. So I've really kind of towed that line a couple times out of a desire to keep the door open on my dreams and not to shut the door. But then I've kind of dragged myself through things that should have been mostly enjoyable. And instead, I was just kind of like, oh, it'll be over soon, you know, and that's not really what you want when you're not getting paid or you're not getting paid a lot. Or I, I will say, like, recording at my house, has become a better like maybe that's what you've ended up doing too is like working on my own alone in my house has been good because i can set my own hours and do it my way and there's a lot of the stress around it isn't there so it's that's easier for me to do i can make it bite-sized to accommodate my my issues 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's similar for me. Like I'm making a music video right now. So oh, wow. every once in a while I get to, you know, sling on a guitar and rock out, but it's, <laughs> it's in the safety of my home. It's not late at night when I tend to flare up. Uh, and that, oh. that's part of the problem for me is like, you know, I could maybe perform if it was like three in the afternoon on a good day, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but no one's going to a rock show at three in the afternoon on a right. good day. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. And we just kind of find ways to do it. And then talking about not wanting to give up your dreams, like this is a very difficult topic because we live in the society. It's like, you got to just go for your dreams and keep going for it. But when your body changes and if you're in chronic pain or you have chronic illness, then your dream sometimes doesn't feel good anymore, like what you're talking about. And then it starts to kind of change your own perception of like, well, who am I if I don't even want my own dream anymore? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I've almost gotten to that point, but thankfully some form of my love of my own musical interests or has kind of kept me going at some point. Some yeah. sort of feeling like, well, this is something I have to say that no one else is saying. And if I can do it, I should do it. I'm going to go do it at least to making my own stuff. And that's been valuable for my spirit. Mm, yeah, totally. I love that. And and we can always find new dreams, you know, like this, this podcast succeeding is now my dream. And I'm, I'm, that's great. That's, I think that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm trying to do too. Yeah. You know, I'd never... Like I, before getting sick, there's no way I ever would have even considered starting a podcast about chronic illness. So that, how could that have been my dream in the past, you know, but it is now. Yeah. So things change. Yeah. I've <laughs> had my some issues similar to what I have now, some kind of pelvic pain issue for so long since I was in my early twenties on and off. Yeah. Let's jump into that for sure. Okay. Um, Marie, what is your major pain? Uh, it's my, my pelvis. I have pelvic pain, which and specifically that's sort of a euphemism that I used to say I have urogenital symptoms and pain. Urogenital symptoms and pain. That's a word the I'm unfamiliar with. would be pudendal neuralgia for one, one okay. thing. That's kind of what I'm dealing with now, pudendal neuralgia. Yeah. And this is why I want to talk to you because, you know, I saw you saying words that I'd never heard on your Instagram. <laughs> oh, I got lots of those words. <laughs> yeah. We've already got two of them. Urogenital pain and pudendal neuralgia. Can yeah. we define both of those? Yeah. So the uro is urology, your urinary tract, genitals, the genitals. And for most of us, they're pretty intimately related. And a lot of times issues that affect one can cause symptoms in the other. And then the pudendal nerve is the main pelvic nerve. I mean, there's, there's multiple pelvic nerves, but it's, it's the one that innervates. There's three branches. There's the rectal, the perineal, and the dorsal branch. So it innervates like your bowels, your urethra and your penis or your clitoris. So just the whole area down there is innervated by the pudendal nerve. And pudendal comes from the Latin word pudere, which means shame. Really? Yes. It's a <laughs> shameful nerve because, you know. No way. Yeah. Because feeling pleasure is shameful for some reason. And normal human functions are horrifying. Yeah. It's so, I mean, you're talking about this pudendal nerve. And you're describing things that I know nothing about. And it's just like, why do I know nothing about that? You know, I have a body also. So right. <laughs> like, why, why are these things not taught? It, it's just an interesting thing to think about the fact that there's so much that humanity knows about the body. And yet each of us as individuals only really know what society sort of deems necessary for us to know, unless you go into a medical field or unless you have a chronic illness like this. And, and the crazy thing is that even though I had diagnoses for years until I started 
digging, which I didn't really start doing for maybe eight years, um, I started digging into medical research. Then I started learning things, so many things. Where I was like, how come my doctors didn't tell me that or that or that or that? Like, yeah. these are all very interesting things that are applicable to me in my situation. But I only discovered them through reading, not by talking to my actual doctors. Yeah, very frustrating. And I, I've experienced some of that as well. Um, so for pudendal neuralgia, you said that, that the pudendal nerve feeds like three branches yeah. Does pudendal neuralgia affect one of those branches, two, three of those branches? It, can it be like different for different people depending on which branch is affected? Yeah, it can. And that's actually a question we in the community ask each other all the time. Like, do you, does anybody have, if my, I fell, I had a cycling accident. I was riding horses. I had a hysterectomy and it started here. And does anyone else also have it now going here? So everyone's constantly asking each other, like, where they feel it. And if it was here, is it normal for it to go everywhere? And unfortunately that does seem to be the case. Like mine started with like an injury after a surgery to my dorsal branch. And that uh, over time started to just spread along the branch until I, I now kind of have it along the whole branch. Wow. Um, what, what was the surgery? Um, it's a crazy story. Um, <laughs> That's what we're here for. It was a surgery called a <laughs> clitoral lysis of adhesions. Wow, so, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, so a lysis is when, I think it means destroy, but it's basically, if you have an adhesion, it's like when skin sticks to skin mm -hmm. um, or something in the body sticks, sticks to something else. And I had just started seeing this specialist for a situation that arose during COVID um, where I had previously kind of been in remission for four years from chronic illness. And I had this whole situation start um, and I went to the specialist and within two months of seeing him, I suddenly had this acute infection and no one could tell the, you know, urgent care couldn't tell me what was going on. I went down to see him. He said, Oh, you have, you have clitoral adhesions and you have balanitis, which is, these are actually terms that are more applied to uh, people assigned male at birth. Only this doctor is really kind of finding them in people with like vulvas, female anatomy. So it's basically, he was saying that the hood of my clitoris was stuck to the glands and then stuff was building up underneath it. And it, that was kind of irritating me getting infected. And then it can even turn into little grains of sand. Wow. called keratin curls. And so apparently, even though I'd never had anything like this in my life prior to being his patient, part of the care he was giving me actually kind of caused this situation to happen, which I didn't understand until much later. And so then he was like, well, I do this surgery that treats this. And I was like, okay. It's like, well, there's other conservative things you can do, but why do those when you can just get rid of it with this surgery? So I said, okay, I want to get rid of it. It's horrible. It was like a couple, like a week of excruciating pain. Yeah. So that surgery I had in office, the situation that happened was I just like, I got my first UTI in 10 years um, at the beginning of COVID and my doctors wouldn't let me come in because of COVID. Sure. And so they just wrote me a script for a random antibiotic. I didn't get a culture for the urinary tract infection to see what bacteria was the issue. And then it was the weekend and I had pee strips at my house. You can buy strips for UTIs at the drugstore. And I could see that the antibiotic was not working. Hmm. And I had my own antibiotics from um, a previous food poisoning situation. And I was familiar with this antibiotic. It's a broad spectrum one. It is does work for UTIs. 
So I had to choose, do I want to keep suffering some more days until I can reach my urgent care again on Monday? Or do I want to just take this antibiotic that I have at my house and feel better? So that's what I did. I'm not recommending anyone do that, but it was literally like the weekend of lockdown in LA and people were not messing around. And I was like, I don't know when I'm going to get to see a doctor. So I took my own Cipro after the Keflex they gave me didn't work. And I got better. But by in 24 hours, my UTI was shifting. But if I don't know, people listening might be familiar with this. A lot of times when you take a lot of antibiotics, you disrupt the microbiome. Sure. Um, and so for um, people with vaginas, that's going to be a yeast infection. If you kill off all the good bacteria, you're going to have an overgrowth. So that happened. And then I, I was still not like given proper care because of COVID where normally you would get like um, a swab and they would hopefully tell you and figure out, confirm you actually have yeast and figure out what's, what's going on. And no one did that for me. They just gave me a random cream and said like, use this. So I used it and I spent the next several months with the same yeast. And like, I'd never had that problem before. It took me another year finally get a proper test to find out that I had a rare yeast, not candida albicans, which a lot of us are familiar with from other yeast infections. I had no idea there were other species, mm. you know, that were resistant to common antifungals. Yeah. So you have a rare fungal infection. I had a rare fungal infection. It was a one called candida parapsilosis. And the crazy thing is, so months went by, my insurance doctors, I was not allowed to see a, a real doctor for a real test. And they were just like, don't sweat and shower more. I'm like, I'm showering every day. I live in LA. It's hot. Like I can't not sweat. And they're just kind of giving me these stupid reasons for why I was continuing to have problems. And I can now tell you that you're not getting chronic yeast because you're not showering or your hygiene's poor or you're sweating. Like if you can't get rid of it with, you know, Diflucan or like there's something wrong. Yeah. You know, it's not just you're not hyg your hygiene is poor. That's not giving you months of yeast overgrowth. What's the timeline here? Is this this is before the adhesions? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, I, so I went back to like it's 2020. I've been living my life for four years in remission from other pelvic pain issues. You also had a chronic illness. You said before that, that yeah, you were in so remission from what was the chronic illness yeah. you were in remission from? Interstitial cystitis, vulvodynia. Um, yeah basically brought on by the birth control pill. Wow. So that's okay. why a lot of videos are talking about that just because it cost me so many years of my life and it was such an easy fix and no one helped me. For yeah. Years. Interstitial cystitis is inflammation of the urinary tract. Yeah. And, and vulvodynia is pain, correct? Pain in yeah. the vulva. The, these are things so, that we have covered. Oh, you have. A previous guest, Vicky, had both of those conditions. So we have learned a little bit about this before. And actually, my doctor thinks I might have interstitial cystitis. We have not okay. confirmed this, but I have mast cell activation syndrome. And once I was diagnosed, we started talking about some, you know, urinary issues that I was having. And he thinks that that could be the cause. So that's something I've learned a little bit about. So you have that and then you go into remission. You, what was it that allowed that to sort of recover? Well, let me first clarify that both vulvodynia and interstitial cystitis are, in my opinion, not diagnoses. They are mm. labels. They're labels for pain. They're yeah. not indicating the cause of pain or they're just kind of indicating the location of pain. Literally, vulvodynia is vulva, din is Greek for pain. And interstitial cystitis is just, you know, itis is like some sort of inflammation of the bladder, but 
a lot of people have cystoscopies that are normal and they still get the diagnosis. Interstitial cystitis, is that inflammation of the, of the urinary tract and bladder or just the bladder? Is it both? The cyst part of that label means bladder. Okay. Um, and then the interstitial is like referring to like a layer of the interior of the bladder. Okay. But urological associations have taken to calling it IC slash painful bladder syndrome. But the point is because they're acknowledging that it's sort of a, a label they're slapping on to people whose urinary symptoms they can't really easily figure out a cause for. Yeah. In my time now doing lots of studying and talking to lots of people, there's truly multiple causes, like really varied causes for both of these conditions. And, and a lot of, they're actually sometimes the same different causes, like bladder symptoms can be caused by the pelvic floor. Vulvodynia can be caused by the pelvic floor. Um, you say MCAS, right? For mast cell activation. Okay. So yeah. I, I feel like people, that's a cause of both as well. Um, and then hormones, especially for um, females, uh, there's estrogen receptors in the bladder and the vulva vestibule, the vagina, the vulva. Also testosterone in um, the vestibule, there's testosterone receptors. And birth control suppresses the ovarian production of estrogen and testosterone, which is how it helps a lot of people with other chronic illnesses like PCOS or endometriosis. Um, but that can have negative effects on the urinary tract and the genital tissues. And, and in my case, it had other negative effects as well. Wow. Okay. So you've been through a lot and, and that starts just by being caused by the birth control pill, but then you go into remission. Eventually you start having other symptoms, this, uh, persistent, rare, uh, fungal infection that sort of kicked off my current nightmare. So yeah, yeah. really kind of tragic. I don't know if I'm it's like kind of awful. Like I was very sick from 2011 to 2016. I found a research. I figured it out. I got off the pill. Subalta was also actually causing me problems. It wasn't helping me. Okay. I got so much better. I got my life back. I moved from my hometown back to LA where I really wanted to be in 2018. Um, and then this whole thing that I was telling you about started with, I had this UTI, then I got this yeast infection, then I went to this doctor. So the doctor that I went to, to help me for this chronic yeast that was making me kind of crazy he is the one who wrote the research that I found in 2016 with wow. his colleague. So I, I had known about him and I had really admired his work because his work on how the birth control pill can affect some people negatively and cause vestibulodynia, which is the kind of vulvodynia and cause urinary tract symptoms was what I found that was like the light bulb moment for me. And I got off the pill in 2016 and I started um, hormone replacement therapy, which is something that people mostly don't hear about till they're perimenopausal and menopause. And I was like in my mid early thirties. So the last step of treatment for his treatment of this problem caused by the years and years on the birth control pill, I should clarify his research was showing that it's worst for people who got on it before age 17 and we're on the low-dose pill for many years. And that's me. I started when I was 15. I was on a low-dose pill because that was like safer. And I was basically on it for 15 years. And as I was reporting to doctors, like I'm having these chronic UTIs, I'm having these this horrible urinary pain, bladder pain. Um, they were telling me the solution is the birth control pill. <laughs> so 
I was on it for years when it was causing kind of causing the problems. So finding that research, getting off of it, doing HRT, I kind of needed to be doing testosterone replacement as well. I was only doing estrogen replacement. And that's why I say I was in remission because I think that if I had used testosterone, I would have gotten even better. But testosterone is not currently um, FDA approved for women. Mm. It's, and it's also a scheduled substance because it's considered a steroid. So urologists can like prescribe it easily, but gynecologists, not so much. They're not really comfortable with it. So I had asked my doctors in 2016, when I got off the pill, I showed them this research. My doctors were kind of like shrugging. They were like, we don't really buy into this, but sure. You can try, um, vulvar estrogen replacement. And like in a month, I made more improvement in a month than I had in five years of bladder treatments. Wow. It was crazy. So that was my remission story. Yeah. So go, going off of the um, birth control and then going on yeah. HRT is what yeah. brought you into remission. And then like four or five years later, you have the persistent infection and then the, yeah. the fungal infection. And then eventually that leads into this, like uh, the adhesions. Yeah. So I go to this doctor, basically the, the yeast infection it kind of attacks your vestibule tissue. The vestibule is part of the, it's like in between the vagina and the vulva. I'm so used to this talking about this stuff. Now I keep forgetting like where I was five years ago. Like, so the vulva is the external part of the female genitalia. The vagina is the inside part. And I use those terms like properly now because it, I have to, to describe my issues, mm -hmm. but most people don't, they, you know, it's all the vagina, but when you have issues like me, it starts to make sense to use the correct terms because you, you have to be able to explain what's going on, like where it hurts and where medication's going. So I use the medically accurate terms now. Um, and then the vest, so the vestibule is like that third piece. And interestingly in females, the vestibule is made of the same embryological tissue as the bladder and the urethra. Interesting. And so I had the kind of vulvodynia that's called provoked vestibulodynia. So I only had pain with like direct contact at the opening. Inside didn't have pain. Outside didn't have pain. Just this one little ring of tissue that has a lot of um, hormone receptors. It has, it has glands that are testosterone dependent. It has tissue that's estrogen dependent. And um, it's the same like males. It's just the, all the urethra. So it's very odd that female people have this opening tissue that's related to the bladder. And that's kind of, I think for people who have both, that's kind of maybe the connection there. There's this cellular connection. It's the same type of skin. Yeah. Do you, I mean, have you ever wondered, is there some sort of something that you carried since birth that connected this type of skin that left you vulnerable to these sorts of pains and, and conditions? You're... I, this is great. You're amazing. Um, <laughs> there's literally a, a, according to these experts who specialize in vulvovaginal disorders, one of the types of vulvodynia is called congenital provoked vestibulodynia. So they found a type of patient who has actually had this since birth. And there, there is a congenital connection because how else would you explain that? They've also, there's like six different causes of vulvodynia or more. So it's like that label where it's just like they slap it on you. And in reality, there's different types and there's different causes and you got to figure it out to get better. Yeah. Um, and so ultimately, if you're kind of the congenital camp, the treatment would be a surgery called a vestibulectomy, um, which has pretty high success rates, but it's a pretty intense surgery. 
What is the surgery? What does it entail? They just remove that ring of tissue. Wow. From so if it's like if like the opening of the vagina is a clock and one o'clock is like the urethra clitoris, but not one twelve o'clock. The rest <laughs> of the clock, six o'clock's like the bottom. Yeah. So they remove from eleven to one and leave everything at twelve because it's way too sensitive. But all that tissue, they just remove it and then they they call it vaginal advancement and they just pull the tissue from inside and they sew it to the to the vulva skin from the outside. And I haven't had this done because my learning about all of this was when I was having a completely different nightmare scenario happening. But I do think that I would probably benefit from this surgery. But for me, like HRT has helped a lot. Yeah. And then, as I said, like I did eventually get my microbiome figured out and improved. Uh, are there any, have you read anything about people who've had that surgery? What is the sort of outlook a few years down the road after everything is healed? And so you have this ring of tissue that is extremely painful. Having a surgery in such a sensitive area is horrifying. It is. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm just wondering what are like the long-term experiences, if you've seen any of people who've had Oh, it yeah, yeah. I've been very interested. Um, there's a whole, there's a group dedicated to the surgery on Facebook, which like, I mean, I like going in there because it's like a lot of success stories and really sweet people who are sticking around to tell other people like, I had a surgery. I thought I was messed up my whole life and I'm fine now. Wow. So for a lot of people, it's completely curative. They maybe have wow. to do physical therapy afterwards to like soften the scar tissue or like relax their muscles. But um, a lot of people, and of course, if you ask the doctors who do it, they're saying 80 to 90% success rate. There are people who have it who stay the same um, or who get worse. Yeah. And that's so tough always when there's a surgery involved because there's never any certainty. And in again, in such a sensitive area, that's a really, I can't even imagine trying to make that choice. Well, this is my story. I, I didn't have that surgery, but I had a different procedure uh, with oh, the wow. same doctor and I had a negative outcome. And as far as I know, I'm one of the only people who's ever had a negative outcome from this lysis procedure. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Keep telling your story. I got to hear more. It's very, it's very long and there's like so much to say. You, you've become an expert on so many different things and we're just like scratching the surface on your story here. It sounds like you've been through <laughs> right? a ton. So yeah. Okay. Keep going. Um, so I go to this doctor. I made like a 30 minute video series on my whole experience there. So I don't really want to go into it. It's kind of crazy what happened, but both good and bad. Like he kind of dropped the ball in a lot of ways with my care in some pretty ridiculous ways, but like he didn't catch the yeast infection. They lost my test on that. They didn't tell me they were going to take it. Like it was kind of compromised when they took the swab. So they never figured out, it took me another six months to really figure that whole thing out. And that was like the main reason I went to him. But when I was there, he said I was a textbook case of the hormonal kind. And so he was like, and I was like, great, I'm going to get this issue. I'm going to get both my issues solved. My longstanding one that was kind of in remission, but now it's flaring up because of the chronic infections and the infections. Like I was like so excited about my life. My life was pretty normal for four or five years. I was really happy, but I was like super excited to get the rest of the way. And like this thing that had been bothering me since my early twenties, maybe, maybe since I was a teenager, I wasn't really aware of it, but I think it was there. Um, and so I started testosterone replacement systemic as well as local so systemic involves like medication to your skin and local involves like putting it directly on your genitals so when you're doing systemic replacement you might be asking like well wow, how's that different from the birth control pill 
the birth control pill, when you take it's synthetic hormones and the body perceives them differently um, when you input synthetic hormones versus identical hormones. And then second, when you take hormones orally, it's metabolized by the liver. And when you do it transdermally, like with a cream on your skin, it doesn't go through the, it doesn't, you don't um, metabolize it. So it doesn't pass through the liver. Mm. And the big key difference with the pill for people who it negatively, negatively impacts is that when you take it orally, your liver produces a blood protein called sex hormone binding globulin that binds to circulating hormones. And the presence of the ex called exogenous estrogen, so coming from the outside. So when you get exogenous estrogen from the pill and it's synthetic, it triggers your liver to produce like way more SHBG, sex hormone binding globulin, than people who have not used the pill. And so when you have more of that circulating protein that's binding hormones, you have less that are bioavailable to your urinary tract, to your genitals where you need them. Hmm. So that's kind of how that all works. Because people are often like, the pill can't do that. Well, th to me, the explanation is bulletproof. Like it's a fact, like it increases SHBG for some people, not everyone that's going to cause not enough hormones to your, to where you need them. And other people it's not. Well, and the crazy thing is that doctors don't, ha they have it backwards. Like my friends come to me and talk to me about this stuff. And I try to tell them what I know. They're like, well, my doctor said that I may as well just be on the birth control if I think I'm going through menopause or perimenopause because that's the same thing as hormone replacement. And it's like, no, it's literally the opposite. It suppresses ovarian hormones. That information has been around since the 90s. Like we know what it does, but doctors don't know it. They yeah. think you're taking the pill, you're adding. And it's, it's not necessarily doing that for everyone. Yeah, fascinating. Oh, so, okay, so back to me, I started testosterone replacement and in the second month, I was still having the chronic yeast and he didn't tell me some things at my intake that he should have told me. And the main one of those is that like testosterone replacement increases sebum production. I mean, we all kind of know that at some level, like in puberty, you get greasy hair, you get acne and oily skin, right? That's like a trope. That's because of the testosterone increasing oil production. Mm. And that also happens you know, you need lubricating stuff down there. And so I was having that, but I had this closed compartment syndrome. The In um, males, it's called phimosis. And it can be called that for the clitoris as well, because the penis and the clitoris are like analogous structures and they both have like a hood the, or a prepuce. Um, and so it's like when the prepuce sticks to the glands. So that's mostly talked about in males. They sometimes have to get surgeries to cut off if they're not circumcised to have the foreskin cut because it's like something called frenulum brev. Like I shouldn't talk to, I don't know, know as much about this. I just have read a lot about it. But essentially to me, what I understand is that like there's these situations that frequently happen to males and this guy, this doctor is giving me testosterone and somehow he's the only guy around that has this happening to his female patients. Mm. So I, I think I had, I think I had the phimosis, like the sticking of the hood to the glands because of those years of atrophy from being on the pill. Wow. Um, and there's a study where they do like all the different, they're studying people with this problem, the phimosis of the clitoral hood on the glands and 75% had been on oral contraceptives. Um, lichen sclerosis is a skin condition. Um, 
And that's another common thing, like fusing of the hood to the glands for those people. But that was even a less of a predisposing factor to developing this than being on the pill, which is crazy to me. I, I didn't know what this, I'd never heard of it. Like he didn't tell me at my intake that I had it. So I, but I'm pretty sure it takes more than two months for your skin to fuse, you know? Yeah. It sounds like you had sort of a perfect storm, all these different. That's what I say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all these different things that, you know, the next step can't happen unless the step before it happens. And all of them are very unlikely because they're unlikely. They're not well, well studied, not known by the doctors. And all, you're taking all these steps that you're told are the right step to do, to do next, but then it leads to the next thing, which is also bad and then needs also to bad. be addressed. Yeah. So it's like, I kind of just had some terrible luck and it gets worse. So I had within two months, I suddenly had this day of like, oh, do I have a UTI? Do I have yeast? Is my yeast like what? This is horrible. Like I had this horrible pain. It felt like a UTI. I went to the urgent care. They're like, we don't see anything wrong with you. I took the test. Everything was negative. I called this doctor because I was under his care doing this hormone replacement and yeast treatments that weren't working. And I and he said, well, you got to come down. So I came down and that's when he told me about the adhesions thing. And he said, oh, so you have the adhesions and you have this smeg. I haven't talked about smeg, but yet it's a normal body secretion that males and females have. It's a mixture of like skin oil, sweat, epithelial cells. And it can build up and it needs to be cleaned out. I never heard of any of this <laughs> until apparently it happened to me. But my question to myself was like, why all of a sudden is this happening? If I went my whole life with pelvic pain problems, never having this. Hmm. And I think it's the testosterone replacement. And I'm not knocking that. I think that's very important. I just wish I had been told about adhesions and smegma buildup and infection from smegma buildup and keratin pearls forming and been told to like clean under there or check for it. And like, if, if I'd been told I would have taken care of it and this wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Wow. So I was in this acute pain situation of like, I want to jump off a cliff, fix this now. And he, and he goes, well, we can do the surgery called a license of adhesion. So I said, okay. Um, I, I have a question. So yeah. when you just mentioned that, you know, you go back to this doctor after the urgent care and that's when he tells you about the adhesions was that when you found out that you had adhesions? Did he know before then that you had adhesions? Good question. On my intake, it, he had like tested thoroughly, but his, his words to me when I brought up that same question was, we were so focused on your vestibule that we forgot to check. And by we, I mean him. Wow. That, but that was his words. We forgot to check to, about for clitoral adhesions. Apparently that's something he normally would have checked for, but he didn't with me. He forgot. And what type so, of doctor is he? Is this a gynecologist? He's a, he's a sex medicine specialist. Um, and I, I'm in a very difficult position because he's sort of like, um, he's sort of like revered in our country for his work on vulvovaginal issues. And I, as you, as you know, I, his research was like changed my life. Wow. I personally, it, what happened next kind of ruined my life. So I'm in kind of in a difficult situation where most people who are in sexual medicine are like taking care of people with these issues. He's very well respected. I have a little bit of a hard time with that at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. There, there might not be anyone else to see. And this guy is like, too. is revered. But then if you have a bad outcome, you're kind of left out in the cold. What, what happened next that, that ruins your life? So, so instead of the conservative treatments would have been to have me try to release the adhesions a little bit or clean out the smegma buildup or 
use a topical steroid called clobetasol to decrease the inflammation from balanitis. That's the treatment in both males and females. Not that females normally ever have this. It's normally not, it's a, it's a male thing. Um, but you know, he didn't tell me about that stuff about manual release or just sitting in the bath or putting on some lidocaine ointment and trying to like get, get it out myself. He just told me about this surgery. And so he also wanted me to get a vestibulectomy um, at that time, which is that big surgery I was telling you about. And he was saying, oh, well, you were on the hormone creams for two months and it hasn't helped you yet. So why don't you get the vestibulectomy, which is a $10,000 surgery and takes six weeks to recover from at least. And we'll throw in the lysis of adhesions for free. And it was like, your book says I should be on the hormone cream for four to six months before I rule this out this root cause. Your book says that. So I'm not going to do that, mm. but I, I want help. So I'm going to, I'll do it in office. And he said to his nurse after my procedure, this is why I prefer to do it in the OR. It's more humane because this procedure was excruciating to do in office without sedation and without sufficient local anesthesia. It was super duper painful. And the nurse was like, they're trying to like keep everything pulled back so that they could do like the removal of this little tiny grain of sand basically that was trapped under there. And I, I have photos of it because um, I took photos, which I appreciate now, but like someone's thumb was kind of using part of my body as like, they're kind of pulling it and stretching it. And the left side is just like normal. And the right side's like kind of a, getting a 180. Mm. I don't really know how long my tissues were being stretched like that. But I've since found out that like stretch and crush injuries to tissue are what cause nerve damage. And about a week after I had this procedure and I should have been feeling better, I, I noticed this like burning pain on my right side. And it was kind of shooting pain in these weird places, like up my belly button, down my groin, down my inner thigh, into my foot. Um, and I eventually checked and I saw that this one little piece of skin called the frenulum, the right on my right side was like three times the size of the left and red and swollen. And that has been painful for the last three and a half years that has not ever gotten better. So that's, wow. and, and the, the pain I was feeling, I didn't know at the time, a lot of that nerve pathway was the path of the pudendal nerve, like down back to my sit bone. So that area is innervated by the pudendal nerve. It's like, you know, the terminal branch at the end, but over time, like it got really sensitized and has become painful like my whole right side, like kind of groin area. So, and, and all the evidence is pointing to this surgery sort of caused a, you know, an adverse effect of triggering pudendal neuralgia. Yeah. Something, well, it depends on who you ask. A couple of people have said, they've been like, that couldn't have caused this. I'm like, well, how many people do you know that have had this procedure? They don't know any. This is not a procedure that's really done a lot. The mm -hmm. lysis of adhesions, like I haven't, I only know a handful of doctors that do it. And so that's been a huge problem for me in trying to seek care is that when I start trying to tell them what happened to me, I've already lost them because, you know, maybe this is a good procedure to that people should be more aware of, but right now, like there's not even much research published on it, much less on negative outcomes or risk factors or dangers. Did the 
did the adhesion surgery at least fix the yeah. problems with the adhesions and then mm -hmm. all the infections cleared up after that? Uh, for the infections to clear up, I had to confront the doctor months later and say, I, I've been using boric acid suppositories and I've been using diflucan, which is fluconazole for months. And I said, you, I think there's something more going on here. And can you try a different kind of antifungal? And so we tried a different kind of antifungal and that worked. Okay. So I needed, a, there's, I needed a whole class because essentially the, the strain of candida that I had was resistant to azole antifungals. Okay. So wow. it took, so that's like a whole, I mean, that's like not even related to my, my current problem at this point. It's like I've had all these different issues. And when I try to tell doctors about it, all they hear is like, you're a complicated patient with lots of problems. It's a you problem. I'm like, it's really not. We really, we know what these things are all done. Like I don't have adhesion problems anymore. I don't have yeast problems anymore. I don't have hormonal problems anymore. Like these were actual physical issues. They're not in my head and they've actually been mostly handled but I do still have this horrible nerve pain. Wow. Right and it, in order to even explain that to a doctor, like we've just been talking for exactly. 50 minutes, you have to kind of go through the, the backstory. You have to explain, well, this is how I got to this point. This is why I think I have this neuralgia. This is what I think triggered it. Yeah. And in order to get there, you kind of have to go back through every step. And then if your doctor isn't willing to go on that journey with you, if, if your doctor doesn't believe you, and I mean, I know from doing this podcast, and you know, it's something that's widely reported on, just all too often, women's stories about what they are saying about what's happening in their bodies are not believed. And right. like that, that alone is a epidemic level issue. So yes. then when you're going into the doctor with this level of complication, which is, you know, and I, I 100% believe you. But it like it is almost unbelievable how many things went wrong to get you to this point. I can absolutely imagine how incredibly infuriating it must be to get any help at all. But then it just leaves you with this excruciating chronic pain. So then what do you do about that? <sighs> well, I mean, I've honestly just tried to suppress a lot of the backstory. And I'm telling you because I want other people, I, I know people to talk to me and I, I'm like, I don't say it, what I think is wrong with them, but I say, why don't you look into non-Albican's yeast? Why don't you get your, maybe ask your doctor for a swab to differentiate species, you know, like mm. I kind of try to steer people in the right direction. And that's why I'm talking about it. But like, I don't tell doctors a lot of the backstory now because they just use it to give me a roadblock. They just use it to, like, I've had people tell me, oh, yeast infections don't burn. They just itch. And I'm like, who are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. You have this is a person that has, doesn't have a <laughs> vagina who told me that. I'm like, yeah. you don't know what vaginal yeast infections feel like. How can you tell me what they feel like? Yeah. So I was trying to create a narrative where this is all in my head. And I was just like, I literally have the test results that show that I had this rare yeast. Okay. But I just kind of leave that part out. I leave a lot of it out because even the, the, the knowledge of how the, the pill can affect some people and cause vestibulodynia isn't widely known. It's, it's getting more widely known. Um, there's a lot of doctors that I follow on social media that are like wonderfully speaking out now who treat these issues. And they weren't really around 10 years ago when I was kind of in that place. So that's yeah. good. It's been really tough. It's been almost impossible. Like I, I've tried a lot of things. I've had a lot of different theories that I've pursued, including mind body. Like I've been willing to say, maybe this is just the trauma of that procedure. Maybe this is hardwired 
scary pain and I just need to calm down. And I've tried to calm down and like, I have calmed down and it hasn't changed, you know, and it's just, it, it's such a localized pain too. It's like literally a couple of millimeters where I have this hypersensitivity. How do like, it's so specific. Is it hypersensitive a hundred percent of the time? Is it, yeah. so it, this is no longer like touch dependent. This is just hurts all day, every day. And maybe yeah, gets yeah. worse with touch. Yeah, exactly. Wow. What, and what is the level of pain that you're in all day, every day? Well, the main trigger is, and this is, this is more of a pedendoneuralgia thing. So I have pedendoneuralgia, but most people with pedendoneuralgia don't have my backstory. They got it a different way, as far as I can tell. Um, but yeah, pain with sitting is one of the main criteria for that diagnosis. Um, allodynia along the path of the nerve. I don't know if you do know what that means. It's like, I don't remember what that means. Allodynia. It's like when you have, there's hyperalgesia and that's having more pain than you should to a somewhat uncomfortable or painful experience. And then there's allodynia, which is like, you're having pain with something that shouldn't be painful. Okay. So like pants. Yeah. Or I should know what that means. Cause I have small fiber neuropathy and you like sometimes, yeah. When I flare up, like any touch is like, extremely painful yeah. and like today's that, that's pretty good today i can like touch my arms and it doesn't sting which wow. is awesome because i'm now being treated for mcas which we think is causing the small fiber neurop neuropathy doesn't matter for this story um well actually i've been recently looking into some other people have been telling me stuff so i look into everything mm. people tell me for myself like do i have small fiber neuropathy or do i have crps of the pelvis if it was related it would be a very unusual case yeah so pain with sitting can you describe this pain for me and kind of paint a picture for us of what living with this pudendal neuralgia feels like? It, for most of us, it's like burning and it's, it's burning just like in the saddle region. Um, for most of us, there's like a, something called the nonce, like nonce in France, Nantes criteria. And it's, there's, I think three, and this is for PM, pudendal neuralgia. And it's like pain that's made worse for sitting. It's typically on one side only. Um, although some people will have it on both sides. And then there's a third thing. What is it? It's maybe the allodynia. I mean, you have so much knowledge in your brain of all these different things. There's got to be a yeah, limit somewhere, right? Wild. <laughs> How does this affect you day to day? Like when you're going about your day, what is the actual experience of this pain? Uh, I like will avoid sitting at all costs. Wow. So I can either lie down or stand up. Um, I mean that I hold on. I got to wrap my brain around that. I can't even process that <laughs> I'm, because my chronic illness requires me to sit. So sitting is like a, a constant part of my day. And, right. you know, chronic pain is exhausting and you have to sit down to rest. But that's not an option for you. You're either. I, I remember that from before when I had debilitating chronic illness, like I yeah. couldn't stand. Um, yeah. and I learned so much and I got so much better from that time. Like I'm, I would say I'm a pretty healthy person at this point, except I had this horrible debilitating pain and I can't sit. I am grateful that I have the stamina that I do to stand, but it does get exhausting. And like leaning helps <laughs> leaning is like, you start to really value bars, tables and walls. And <laughs> so when you sit down, the pain is unbearable. Is there a level of pain while you're standing as well? And yeah. what is that level of pain while you're standing? Um, I would say it's about a five. Okay. Four, and, five. I mean, four or five all day, every day. That's too much. 
And then yeah. when you sit down, what does that spike to? I'd say like, depends on the length, like the longer I'm seated, the worse it gets. And the harder for me, the harder the surface. Um, I sit on a cushion with a hole for the sacrum to kind of, mm. it's like, as long as my right sit bone is in that hole, it's really like the, my bone sit bones contact. I think the nerve runs right past the bone and it can be pretty like a intense contact point if you're nervous sensitized. Um, but even, even just in that position, because you're stretching the nerve out by sitting, mm. it's like worse just to be seated, even if there's a donut or whatever. I mean, you, can you like, can you go to a movie? Can you go to a show? You have to sit in the audience for two hours. Is that, is that even possible? This has been one of the worst, one of the many worst parts, but yeah, as a musician and actor, like I can't go to plays, I can't go to symphonies. I can't go to concerts. I can go to, I can go to things that you can like stand around and like, so bar lounge music. If people are standing, that's good for me. Yeah. If there's high bar tables or a bar where I can kind of lean while my friends sit, that's good. It's like been limiting in a way that I never would have imagined. I've n- I've never heard that before. I mean, I've never met anyone in my life who just can't sit yeah, and, yeah. and has to either stay standing or lying down the whole time. And I I talk to a lot of people about a lot of conditions, uh, and and that's yeah. I'm just my brain is like spinning just trying to think about how that would impact your life. And it's just transportation like is you, a you really can't. Big oh one. yeah, transportation. You can't get in a car. Well, I I do drive, so I just had a surgery like three weeks ago for this and I'm worse since it. So like, I don't, I haven't been driving. And so that's why I'm in my family's house right now, Mm. not in LA. Um, But I was driving, I would say my cap was around 45 minutes. Okay. And, you know, I took one gig last summer in Long Beach and I live in the Northern part of LA and I even left at noon and like, I was like so nervous about the whole thing because of that. Actually, I, I had someone who was supposed to drive me and they, they bailed. And so I was kind of stuck. Wow. And I mean, I had my TENS unit, I had lidocaine, I had an, I had ice packs, I had um, capsation. I don't know who you know what that is. I don't. From FFN. It's like a burning pepper cream. Oh. But it's, you know, it's pretty painful to put on that area but it does cover up the pain of the pudendal nerve. So like I was just, yeah, it was awful just for me to have to drive over 45 minutes. It was, I'm never doing it again. Um, So you just mentioned a whole bunch of uh, things that you use to try to help. What about medication? Is there any nerve pain medication? I I talk to people all the time about things like gabapentin. Have you tried that sort of stuff? Is it helpful? I think we're all on the speaking the same language here with all those. Like, so I've tried all of them, like Effexors and Walta, Gabapentin, Lyrica, uh, Amitriptyline. I am on Nortriptyline, maybe takes it back by 5%. Okay. Which is worth it, but you know, not enough. And then I, about two years ago, I started low dose naltrexone. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't think it was working for me. And then I stopped and then I was like, Oh shit. That wow. was helping. Oh, interesting. Know? For the yeah. pain. Yeah. Low the- dose naltrexone, worth a try. I I don't have much to recommend. I recommend everyone try it because it uh, after all these other drugs that give you really bad side effects and then are really hard to get off of. Mm-hmm. You know, I had horrible Cymbalta withdrawal um at what's, one point. What's your dosage of LDN? Um, I'm, I just kind of started taking myself up again because of my increased pain. Um, I'm currently going over like the traditionally high dose, which is 4.5. I'm on like six milligrams. 
Okay. And that's still so low. I mean, there's people that yeah. take hundreds of milligrams for, for other purposes. Right. Um, so yeah, low dose is usually from what I've heard between like one to five milligrams per day. So six yeah, is not, I mean, that's, that's not wildly higher than that. I think, I think, you know, for neuropathic pain, there are some doctors who have been focusing on this and they say like, you can try going up to 10. Yeah. Okay. And it's still considered LDN. You're not like getting a yeah. full opioid blockade from. from are that. you getting it from a compounding pharmacy? I am. Yeah. And I recommend them too. Cause I, it was really expensive to do it through LA. And then I asked around on like this really great Facebook group, the LDN research trust. Um, mm. And I use a pharmacy in Colorado called Delmore pharmacy. Oh, great. That's a great tip. I, I'm still kind of wrapping my brain around everything you've been through. And I, it's, this is one of the more complex stories that I think that we've covered where there's just so many moving pieces. And it's also all of these words and conditions that are just not in the zeitgeist, you know, that are not being really covered because, you know, there's just so much about women's health and about, you know, genitals that are just not talked about. And, you know, we all have bodies and we should be able to talk about our bodies and talk about intimate things in ways that can get us the help that we need. But I'm just, I'm kind of overwhelmed thinking about what you, what you're up against, which is, which is overwhelming. How has this affected your personal life? Uh, it's been pretty rough. Um, so the name of my social media accounts for this is my secret life of pain. And, you know, if you asked me five years ago, I mean, because I went through that whole thing before and I actually came out on the other side and I never thought of making a social media to talk about it. Hell no, never. And then this happened to me and I still took a couple of years before I even wanted to talk about it at all. Um, and the reason I felt like I, I did is because like my inner monologue all day long was like talking to me about everything I knew and everything that happened to me and how angry I was about all the misinformation I've been given. And I was like, I need to start the social media account for myself. I need to just talk about it and put the information out there so that I know it's out there. And so it's out of my brain. You know, the stuff that doctors should have told me that they didn't, the stuff that could have saved me months or years of suffering or changed the course of relationships or my career. You know, I don't want that to happen to other people. Yeah, yeah. I really commend you for that, especially on a topic that a lot of people are uncomfortable engaging with, the fact that you're creating a platform to make a safe space for that. And also, yeah, giving yourself a chance to sort of expel all of these thoughts and put them out in the world somewhere. I just can't imagine going through that and like trying to date at the same time. That must be like a nightmare. Yeah. Well, that's so for like a couple of years, I didn't date. Um, and that was very heartbreaking for me because I had been actively looking for a partner mm -hmm. and dating in LA. Um, prior to that week, that week where I had that one procedure. And then it was just kind of like nosedive. And I was like, soon, 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 I'll get better and get back to it. And that's, that never really happened. Hmm. Um, someone did pursue me about a year ago and I was like, okay. So I actually told him stuff and he was pretty good about hearing it. And so, you know, and I felt it just, just kind of depends on the person. I guess I was, it didn't work out with that person. Um, for a lot of reasons, he was 13 years older than me. He had a lot of issues himself, unfortunately. So it did teach me something, but I would still say it's almost impossible to date with this because the idea is one thing if someone's coming to you and it's telling you they're interested in you and you say, well, hey, 
I've got this thing. And then you, and you just started there at trust. You can trust them because they're coming for you and you can, you know, slowly work it. But on dating apps and like with current dating culture, it's a very different thing than a person that you meet in the wild and you can assess them out and you determine that they're kind of safe, you know, and we don't get that so much anymore. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is a tough topic. You know, I met my partner, Andy, while I was flared up and looking back on it, I'm just amazed that she dated me through six years of me being sick all day, every day, you know, and how did you broach the topic? Well, this is, this is a tricky one because when I first flared up, I left work for a while. I was just insanely sick for a few months, but then I started to slowly recover just from resting. And then I got misdiagnosed with Lyme disease. (laughs) And then I started, you know, a year worth of Lyme treatment right at the beginning of that is when I met Andy and I was just full of hope that this was going to be temporary. So when I met her, I was like, I'm off work right now because of a weird illness situation. I've had flare-ups of this on and off my whole life. It has kept me out of work in the past. And in the past, I just left work for a year and then I was able to go back. So we're really expecting this to maybe take a year. But in the meantime, I got a lot of time. I'm being treated for Lyme disease now. We think it's going to go better than ever before. So, you know, let's let's start dating and see what happens. And I, I was kind of extremely naive about what was actually happening. And it was like four years into our relationship when I was declining. That was right before I started using a wheelchair when, you know, my legs just like weren't working anymore. And I was just like, we need to figure out if we can be together with me this sick because we we don't, there's no way out right now. There is no hope. There's no diagnosis. I need to learn how to live with this and be happy in the moment of living with this. And that transformation for both of us was incredibly profound and a very, very good, positive, healthy thing for both of us. And then I started using a wheelchair. I was able to do more because of that. And things just started to improve. And then I got a diagnosis and then I got on medication and now my legs work again. It's like, I can't even believe the luck that that I've lived through. But when I broached the subject, I was wrong. You know, what I thought was happening, I was wrong. And also like my story has taught me that because something is happening now doesn't mean it's going to happen always. You know, even in your story, you've been through these ups and downs. And even if something continues to happen, there are ways to find adaptation that you never would have considered, you know, kind of getting your mind out of any box that you've ever heard of before and trying new things. And, you know, you just never know what's going to happen in the future. And also, I'm a hopeless romantic who really (laughs) believes in love. And I really believe that if you find the right person, then anything that is going on with your body should not be a deterrent to love. There's Mm -hmm. always adaptations that can be made and there's always new things to try. And then if you're, if it's your person, if it's the right person, you know, I always (laughs) think about all my problems and all of Andy's problems kind of fit together like a puzzle piece where they complement each other. Wow. Everybody has problems, right? You kind of need that no matter what. If you're a completely healthy person, you're probably super anxious because you have so much good in your life, you're worried about losing it, right? <laughs> or, or I would if you, be after what I've been through. Right, right that, totally. I, that's an anxiety I'm now dealing with is like things are yeah. so good now that I'm like terrified of like reflaring up or anything like that. Um, I, I would be at this point after what happened to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally. I thought I was going to get better. I actually was yeah. 
three weeks ago, I was thinking this surgery is going to, this is it. And then next month at this time, I'll be back to my old life. And that hasn't happened. So, yeah. but I was like really mentally prepared. Yeah. You said it was a month ago. Is that right? Yeah. But it's all, the tissues healed. So basically I had this visible kind of lesion wow. on, on my right frenulum. And, um, I showed it to some doctors be like, that's normal. And other doctors were like, that's neurogenic inflammation or that's something or that's a problem, but I can't help you. Um, and so I finally found a doctor who was willing to try excising it, but you know, she was pretty conservative and it's not really clear to me, like if she removed all of the tissue that was hypersensitive or what's really going on, it's hard to say because I, I mean, there's like 11 medical journal articles that even mention this part of the body yeah. on pubmed.com where like, you know, the ovaries is like 200,000 articles. And for this thing that mine is 11. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, you're exceptionally adept at research. I can tell. You know, the amount of knowledge in your brain is shocking to me. You, you've become a, an expert on all the nerves, <laughs> on the areas. You're just the genital expert. You've learned everything. <laughs> I've learned quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. If I was anywhere decent at chemistry and physics at this point, I'd be like, med school's for me. But Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea what the future holds. But the lesson that I learned for myself that I feel compelled to share is to stay open to the future being different than the present and yeah. to always yeah. be kind of open to, to looking for where is that little side path that no one else is going to notice, but it could make all the difference to me. And maybe it leads down to some beautiful waterfall somewhere, you know, yeah. but in mm -hmm. the meantime, also being very present with, okay, this is the pain I'm in. What are the adaptations that I can do? You know, <laughs> You can yeah. get a segue. Like, have, do you know what the segues are? That I like do. the yeah. stand-up thing that you push around on. Like, if I were when in your position, want. I'd be yeah. getting a segue because that that'd be yeah. my new form of transportation. Even though they're like, I'm sure they're insanely expensive. But you know, there's there's always change. Like, change is the only constant. Um, and it just sounds to me like you're in just such a horrible position. Like, you've been put in this really ridiculously hard position that is just beyond unfair. If I were you, I'd be so angry. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't even know how to like get up and go every day. But you're doing it. You know, you're you're making one day at a time progress, just getting up and getting yourself dressed and like the fact that we're, you know, even able to have this conversation, like the yeah. amount the amount of advocacy work that you're doing, you're really like funneling all of this anger and this horrible thing that you've been through into this like really powerful medium by sharing it with other people which is sometimes you know the most profound thing that you can do so thank you i don't know yeah, but I, I, it I, also sounds like you're really in the midst of your journey like this is not a settled case no, you're gonna keep on fighting definitely. yeah i i have a few options left um not a lot at this point what are those options uh well one of them is the spinal stem i don't know if you've had other people with a stem implant mm -mm. a lot of people with chronic pain of various kinds can get um like an implant like a battery pack with little electrical leads into the spine that sends um signal kind of like a tens unit and it kind of overrides the pain signals wow. and it can kind of result in an, enough of a reduction of pain where people can kind of go back to normal function i know people with pedonal neuralgia that have them and they're like i can sit again like, they're not no they're not like, i'm cured I'm not saying I'm cured, but they're saying like, I'm back to mostly living life on my terms. 
However, insurance doesn't cover them. And there's a huge failure rate as well. Lots of potential problems that happen with the, with them. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of looking into those now. I, I, yeah, in terms of like where and how to get it, it's kind of difficult in my location. Uh, so that there's not, I don't have like a clear path there yet, but I'm, it's something yeah. I'm looking into. Yeah. It's so kind of like one. the last resort for me. Because yeah. Because yeah. essentially and the, and the potential risks involved. I mean, you have a device implanted into your body from now on. Sure. And I mean, it, it seems like just right now, a month out of surgery time is like the first step is just kind of giving it some time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to hope that the nerves will calm down a little bit, but so I had that surgery because it, it kind of looked like I may have had a neuroma. What's a neuroma? A neuroma is when damage to a nerve results as the nerve kind of tries to grow back and heal. It instead kind of grows into a jumbled little nerve ball. And oh, it's extremely interesting. painful. That sounds yeah. like adhesive arachnoiditis, uh, which is something we've covered on the podcast where it can be caused by a needle going into the low back, like an yeah. epidural or a lumbar puncture, and the nerves bunch up around that area and it's extremely painful. Um, that's another one of these sort of never talked about chronic pain conditions that we've covered on the show. Oh, I'll have to go find that episode because I've listened to Dr. Forrest Tennant who talks, who treats adhesive arachnoiditis patients. Yeah. But I he hadn't really myself looked into that issue because I didn't think I had it. Yeah. But it's essentially something like that where it's like some, some thing, some nerve injury, tra uh, stretch and crush nerve injuries would cause a neuroma. And a lot of times you hear about them in the context of like repetitive use. People get them on their fingers and their toes and their feet called a Morton's neuroma. Um, but yeah, you know, some, any sort of trauma to a nerve can cause one, but they apparently did a biopsy and they didn't see that. Um, okay. but I, it's like, I don't really know what that biopsy is or was like, who's looking at it and how, how do I don't have like a checklist of like what they were testing for. Yeah. And you don't trust doctors anymore. Right. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah. I, I've had a couple caring ones, but they, they didn't really have a lot of answers for me. And is um, this pain so one-sided? Am I remembering that you one said that? One-sided, okay. yeah. It's just really localized, but then it refers on nerve paths. Okay. There's another episode that you're reminding me of. Um, the adhesive arachnoiditis episode, I think, is definitely worth a listen. Not not because it's the same, but just it's it's in the same like galaxy of of pains that we're talking about yeah. here. Um, but there's another one about you. You mentioned CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome. Uh, I talked to Annie Vander, who's a country music singer, and she talked mm -hmm. about mir mirror therapy for CRPS that was extremely oh, yeah. effective for her. And wow. for one-sided pain, if you like set your body up by a mirror no, so I that you tried see- that. Oh, you tried this. Okay, tell me about that. You can't do it for, you can't do it for this part of the body. Okay. <laughs> you, you can't. Your brain is like, I see what you're doing. There is a mirror that you put there and I see both, like, you can't, there's no way to like put a mirror down your- genitals and sort of trick your brain into like seeing that you're only touching like i tried it seemed like mm. a good idea uh, it didn't really work yeah that's frustrating but i also I'm, you know this is why i came to the conclusion because i tried so many things like that that there must be something with that happened to those the skin cells there because it's such an external thing yeah yeah definitely Th there's there's this like elemental unfairness about your story that the part of our bodies that is wired for pleasure is causing so much pain 
yeah, it's pretty crappy. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Oh, for a while, I guess it was worse, but like, you know, pretty easily triggered, but like, I don't want to, some things are hard for me to, to listen to, or, you know, like a lot of my friends wanting to talk about their dating lives and their sex lives. Like it's a little hard for me because for me, it's been so full. It's fraught with like pain and problems. So how does it make me feel? Yeah. Frustrated, sad for myself because I, I also had periods of time without a lot of symptoms and i i would say i had a pretty positive relationship to intimacy um and it, it's a little frustrating because a lot of times the medical perception of people with pelvic pain is they must have had sexual trauma and that is possible and there is a correlation there but it's also not necessarily true this is also the body parts like your elbow or your wrist you can simply have things go wrong with them or your colon or your brain you know you can have things can just go wrong yeah and for me, that's, I don't have a negative, um, thankfully, I don't have a traumatic, the only trauma that I have is medical trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell me about it. Me too. <laughs> um, well, I do want to stay in touch because, because like I said, you're just right in the midst of your journey. And I'm so curious to hear what the future brings for you and the next thing you're going to learn. Because I, I can tell you're the type of person who's just never going to stop trying and never going to stop researching. And I gave up so many times on my journey. Like I'm 39. I got diagnosed at 38 years old with something that we think I've had since at least second grade, if not born with, although it did come and go throughout my life. Was that the small fiber neuropathy or the- That's the MCAS. Yeah, the MCAS. We think small fiber neuropathy was caused by MCAS. I think a lot of people with vulvodynia also have MCAS. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean- is much more susceptible to insults and like yeah histamine responses and yeah it looks like long covid there's a link with mast cells as well there's just we we need to know more you know we We need more research we're always working on it that's why i'm so excited to be you know partnered with rare patient voice where they're trying to connect people with rare diseases with the people researching it trying to help connect the dots between the lived experience and the research because that sometimes can be frustratingly far apart but I used to feel like getting a diagnosis was impossible, and now I have two. So I I never know what's coming in anyone else's story, but I always believe that it's always possible for progress to happen in one way or another. You know, even yeah. if you find one more pill that lowers that pain level by another 5%, that's worth living for, you know? Right. Or I was listening to your small fiber, your recent episode, and someone's talking about the cream from Japan, and I, I looked into that. Yeah. I feel like I there's something wrong with my this external tissue of the nerves there. I was like, maybe that could help me, you know? That yeah. kind of reminded me that there are things in development right now that right. might help me. Cause I definitely felt like giving up in yeah, in lots of ways, you know. Totally. And I mean, the only surefire way to never make progress is to give up. And that's like the hardest thing because it's just so unfair. It's just so backwards from how we expect life to be when we're little kids and it's like yeah you know we're gonna live these dream lives but then you get into your life and then something goes horribly wrong and you can't fix it it's all i was just thinking yesterday like if i was a garden i would be blooming with all the self-care and research and like (laughs) but instead i'm just the same as i was last month you know yeah but you're i mean you're developing all this research and your brain is expanding to to like siphon (laughs) all of this stuff into your brain I'm, i'm really impressed with how much you know and you're you're getting stronger in ways that you aren't aware of every day because you're fighting this pain 
but you know, I just really want to know what happens to you down the line on this journey because I'm I care and I I want you to find something that helps and I want you to stay in touch yeah. and you know if you yeah. ever have updates to share please we'll let love, me know. Yeah, I'd love to share some positive updates. Yeah, absolutely. I have one more question for you. Sure. Your story is so you know, there's so many ups and downs and there's so many rare occurrences that happen to get you to where you're all to where you are. But you've also learned a ton along the way. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself before all of this started, you know, I guess like 2016, 2017, if you could share one message with yourself based off what you've learned, what would it be? Oh, this is going to sound so sad. Don't just trust the doctor. I wish I had done the conservative treatment instead of that procedure. Wow. And, and, I, and I wish I had looked into the yeast, the, the existence of multiple species sooner. And I wish I, you know, there's all these little things where if I had, if I had been a, like acted like I do now, just to be my own doctor, essentially, and cross-reference everything they say, I would have learned the things that I found out the hard way. Mm. And I would have spared myself a lot of suffering. Just it, it's out there. Um, I really think that the skill, like I'm a musician, but like I was an academic musician. And I feel like the research skills I learned in school are what helped me get through this because there were really confusing papers that I didn't understand. And when I research this stuff, I just jump into stuff that I don't understand. And I just read it as best I can. And I take what I can. And usually I can get the gist of it, even though there's tons of words I don't know. And there's chemical processes that I don't quite follow. And I kind of got, I kind of figured how to, how to do that and not be intimidated when I was in school studying music, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but that I feel like has really saved me in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's so important to be your own advocate and to recognize that doctors are human and can make mistakes. And you're one of many patients, you know, if you're gonna be in something long-term like this, you gotta learn about it and you gotta yeah. stand up for yourself and fight for yourself. Well, Marie, you've done an incredible job today. I'm so, I'm so frustrated with what you've had to live through. And I'm so sorry that so many things have gone so horribly wrong. But I, like I said, I'm so impressed with your, uh, with what you've learned. I'm so impressed with your perseverance. And I'm so impressed with your willingness to share about this publicly and to create your own platform. Um, please tell us where can people go to find your platform online? Um, my Secret Life of Pain is my Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Um, I also have an Amazon store where I, the stuff that I use, if people ever ask me, that's all my secret life of pain. Awesome. And I'll tag you everywhere. Those are the three platforms okay, I you. use as well. So, okay. I appreciate the opportunity to share my story. I think it's really helpful for me and lots of people. So thank you for doing yeah. this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to meet you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com.
Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncy, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Major Pain Podcast.